just a moment. Just a moment. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, exploring where the law has been. Hey Siri, take a selfie. And where it's going. Oh. Good afternoon. From the brilliant... My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot. To the scary... Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? And everything in between. Please welcome your very real and very human host, Mike Madison. Hello, and welcome to the Future Law Podcast where we cut through the noise on modern topics on law, the legal profession, legal education, and legal technology. I am Michael Madison, professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm co-host of the Future Law Podcast, along with Dean Dan Hunter of QUT Law Faculty in Brisbane. Today, I am solo by myself with two excellent guests, Dean Trish White and Andrea Sinner. Dean White, Trish White, just came off of a term of 10 years serving as Dean of the School of Law at the University of Miami. Before that, she served for nearly 10 years as the Dean of the Law School at Arizona State University. She's here with us today because she is the chair of the American Bar Association Commission on the Future of Legal Education, which just came out with a spectacular new report which is what we're going to talk about today. Andrea Sinner had a long career at Accenture before leaving that role, getting a law degree at the University of Miami and taking on duty as the executive director of the ABA Commission. So Trish and Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Trish, uh, can we start off with you? Can you tell us a little bit about the the ABA Commission? Where where did it come from? What was its mandate? What was its purpose? It started two and a half years ago when Hillary Bass was the president of the American Bar Association, and she wanted to have as her singular contribution uh, and presidential project a serious look by a small group of, shall we say, forward-thinking people about legal education and legal licensure and access to justice issues. And she wanted to put together a commission that was separate from and different from um, the normal ABA kind of task force. Uh, The American Bar Association task force typically are very large. They uh, put together very long reports, and their reports have to be uh, uh, voted on by the uh, directors or the uh, delegates to their uh, – it's a complicated structure, but it involves about 500 people having to vote on it and uh, has the effect typically of uh, not allowing for things to be very radical. She wanted this to be a streamlined commission that would be free of that. And so uh, we were put together um, to think hard about how uh, legal education and legal licensure and access to justice worked together or ought to work together or didn't work together and to make 
recommendations on the one hand, but also to be able to do it uh, independently of the vote of the larger governing body of the ABA. So, so the commission here is independent of sort of the standard processes of the American Bar Association, and also, as I understood it, independent of the uh, the section on legal education for the ABA, and independent of the accreditation function for U.S. law schools that the ABA performs. Absolutely independent right? of all these things. Absolutely independent of all these things, and and uh, because of that, we were free really to to think out of the box and to do what we wanted and um, <laughs> to take such slings and arrows as would be said to it. Okay. So Andrea, uh, so tell us a little bit about the, so how the commission was composed and how it did its work. Absolutely. Um, the uh, One of the nice things, as Trish has alluded to about the commission, is the size allowed for a little more agility. Um, and it's one of the important things um, in this moment in history, but also um, as we think about the future of legal education and licensing. And so we had a group of 12 people, um, and they are... Uh, Plus you. Plus me. Yes, exactly. Um, the, uh, the the anchor role. Um, and so the 12 members and myself uh, came from all different backgrounds, but an incredible sort of pedigree of experience with doing the hard work of helping students transition from wanting to be in the profession to being the profession. Um, and then, but also being, to, as Trish said, a little bit more radical. So what we did was structured a, a working, this group within three working groups. We had three working groups within it um, focused on future skills, on uh, licensure, uh, and then also on access to justice. And so we had a little bit of segmentation because all of those things, of course, intertwine. Our group uh, met as an entire group multiple times, and we met as subgroups um, and we had lots of individual sessions. Um, the 12 members are all, um, I would say, already working 120% on their assigned duties. And so their donated and volunteered time for this. Um, we had to be really careful to uh, be clever about how we use the time and get to get to the heart of the matter. Um, so what I think is most exciting about the report is uh, looking at a couple different pieces. One is how do we look at the systemic problems that stop good people from making the change they really want to have happen? Um, and I think we got underneath some of those issues, um, and that's you know presented in our in our final outcomes. And perhaps most exciting for some people is that we made the report in a in a brief format. So it's uh, it's nine pages of dense text, um, but nine pages allows for candidly anybody to read it. So it's a fairly accessible document because um, we need everybody as part of the solution. Um, and it can't have a, an 80 page document that only a few people have the time to read. So um, we did a lot of work over the over the two and a half years and um, we're excited about how these results can be used. Okay. So uh, for people listening to the podcast who want to be able to dive into the report uh, themselves, of course, we'll post a link to the uh, webpage for the commission where you people can find a copy of the report and identities of all of the members of the commission. I can say that it's, uh, it's abundantly clear that the commission, despite its small size, covered a pretty broad waterfront in terms of professional experience, 
uh, sort of perspective on the problem. Uh, and it's even though it's the American Bar Association that sponsored the commission, it's not uh, exclusively a U.S. based uh, group of people. So there was clearly an awareness that this is uh, not only a, a U.S. problem. Uh, but uh, let's dive into the report itself a little bit. Trish, uh, you've been around legal education as a faculty member and as a leader uh, and in senior administrative roles for a long time. So you, you're you of a really long perspective on uh, reform questions and changes and the difficulty of change in legal education and higher education. What really strikes you as new and different and important about this commission's report? Well, the first observation that I would make, Mike, is that all of us agreed uh, on the on the commission that there was a fundamental, as did Hillary, uh, that there's a fundamental misalignment between the way law is practiced, between legal education, and between licensure. And that the misalignment, in some sense, has grown over the years as institutions make incremental changes in each of these arenas. And we end up with a situation where a huge percentage of the people uh, who need legal services can't afford them, and this includes most middle-class people. We end up with a situation where licensure doesn't exactly reflect perhaps what it ought to. And we end up with a situation where legal education, although it has made a lot of changes over the years, uh, doesn't really reflect the skill set that a changing practice model um, requires. And so we decided that in light of all of that and in light of our common belief in that, and, and I will say those of us who've been around for a long time recognize that any kind of change that you might want to make within a particular institution is incredibly slow. So if you're the dean of a law school and you want to make some you know, radical change by making a, a, a change in the grading system, you you're, get stuck in that for for a hundred years and these big ships are impossible to, to steer. Uh, and so what happens is that you get tiny little incremental changes and nobody sort of steps back and looks at a principled kind of approach. And so we decided that what we would do that would, we hope to be distinctive was to step back and come up with foundational principles that we thought a legal system, legal education and the licensure part of that would want to take into account if it were starting a, starting anew and starting from scratch. And we spent a great deal of time articulating what we thought would be what turned out to be six foundational principles. And that's an extraordinary thing that we, we thought uh, it, it took a very long time for this group to come up with six foundational principles. They're articulated clearly in the report. Um, and they're kind of, I think, uncontroversial. I'm happy to say that. And if you start with foundational principles, then we thought we could move to operational principles. And we have uh, eight, I think it is, operational principles, which are. Uh, follow in some sense from the foundational principles and are also uh, very deliberately articulated in the report. And then we started with that as a basis to examine what 
uh, was wrong? What were the obstacles to a report to a system or let's say coordinated system that kept it from being uh, consistent with with those principles? And what were the obstacles? And uh, as Andrea can pick up from here, having done that, we hope that, uh, and we had sort of commentary and examples and some some uh, considerations that we hoped uh, would be uh, ways in which people could go forward from that. But the idea was that if you start on a principled systemic basis and use that, as Hillary said at one point, the North Star for for examining and thinking about change and design, that that would be a different approach from the the incremental one. So there, you know, we, we articulate this as being a design problem, and we're trying to set forth standards by which you would you would uh, design a system if you were starting anew. So Andrea, could you uh, maybe pick up on that and and uh, give a you know, give an example? Uh, if you could, uh, from the report of one or two of the foundational principles and how those connect to one or two of the uh, of the operating principles and how that might pay off in advancing kind of a design strategy around uh, one aspect or another of this overall challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. The um the of the six of the foundational principles one of my one of my personal favorites is the one that's listed first is stewardship um and i'll read this um not to take time but we are guardians of the legal system within our democracy and according and accordingly work to defend liberty pursue justice and maintain the rule of law for future generations um so back to trisha's point that that's not terribly controversial um but sometimes one of the principles we use as our working group is we have to shake things up by being reasonable um and if we think about the role of educational licensing um it is really to prepare um our future stewards um and so we must be stewards um clearly of you know our legal system within our democracy but then we have to think about the next generation that's coming and how do we prepare them in a way um, that serves them and the future uh, society that we serve. Um, so that's an example of one. Another one is access. Um, within the foundational principles, we're committed to developing a legal system that provides affordable and effective legal assistance, guidance, and protection to all. We talk a lot about access, and perhaps it gets used by different people in different ways, um, but that's how we brought it together in terms of, you know, a foundational principle that we could use in the design for go forward. Now, so those things are kind of the essential truths, if you will. Um, there's six of them. So you have to go to the report if you want all of them. Um, and then you go to, well, how do you bring that to life? And so there's a lot of kind of pull out there for what's the roadmap. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we then shifted to is these operational principles. And the first one is value focus. Um, and so we think about how do we, and I'm not going to read these because these are too long, but, you know, are we adding value to society, to students, to access to justice, to the problems that we all have? And how are we looking at the uh, equation, including the cost equation of how we deliver services and <clears throat> transform people into being part of the legal ecosystem? Um, and then the other really important one from an operational principle um, is the one size does not fit all. And I think that's important because we call that out 
it's one of the reasons that you don't have a you know a detailed roadmap of the 72 steps each institution must take must take um, because it would be frankly audacious for us to presume to tell all the institutions whether they be educational or licensing or others what they have to do when they are serving different missions in many cases um, and so our one size does not fit all is one of our operational principles and so we want to balance um, being true to the the macro way in which the profession serves society, uh, but then also recognize that at the individual institution level, you have to do different things in different ways, and that's good. Um, and we don't want to encourage the sameness that we've had. Um, so that's just a little tasting for you. So, so let me pull out a, a couple of things that you just uh, mentioned there, and, and switch maybe back over to Trish. Uh, so one of the the phrases you used, Andrea, in that uh, summary was legal ecosystem. Uh, and I'm sure you used that phrase very purposefully. Uh, you did not use the phrase legal profession. And I think it's worth noting that in the context of the report overall, there are many, many references in the report to legal professionals uh, and not that many references to lawyers. And so, Trish, I know you said at the outset that a lot of the foundational principles uh, that the report starts with, that the commission agreed on, are meant to be essentially uncontroversial. But here's an area where the report, I think, intentionally uses language that tries to broaden the conversation, tries to include a lot of considerations around the design process and systems thinking about how to uh, approach a lot of these challenges, but in a way that... Uh, maybe more than a little provocative with respect to the classic or traditional conception of uh, legal education and and lawyering. So so what's the what's the commission's thinking about that? Why why choose to go so broad in such uh, un, unconventional language? Well, I think it's safe to say that we believe um, as a group uh, that things uh, are not all so good <laughs> in, in the way uh, our legal system and its constituent parts work. And so part of the problem that change agents have is how do you bring about change in a fairly, uh, as I said before, uh, in, in large institutions, uh, it tends then to be incremental. And so part of our mechanism of starting with first principles and moving forward allowed us to say a number of, I think, or to go in a number of ways which would suggest that perhaps very provocative radical change in certain areas at least ought to be considered. That's what design is all about. Um, so you talk about the fact that we used the word legal profession and legal professionals uh, rather frequently throughout it, because it isn't 100% clear, is it, that only lawyers can do the work, only one size fits all lawyers with a single license can do the work that needs to be done to bring about access to justice uh, in the important sense of uh, bringing about and supporting the values that uh, are constitutive of our democratic society. Um, and we have plenty of examples in other fields where we have 
people who do not have a single license, but they're able to do very useful uh, things and it costs less costly to bring them about. And yet they perform very good services, medical profession being an obvious one where there are lots of different uh, uh, paraprofessionals of one sort or another, or professionals of different sorts who bring about uh, uh, medical care. Well, legal care isn't all that different uh, from that, and yet we have a very, um, uh, we, we tend to have the, uh, a cartel in our profession that, that uh, sort of has the same training for everybody, and then you take the single license, and then you can do anything. And you can't do any of it unless you have gone through that period. And so we wanted to remain open for those kinds of changes and considerations to be made. So we explicitly uh, use the word or the phrase legal profession, legal professional throughout so that people might be willing to think a bit out of the box and think about how would you structure the provision of the kinds of things that legal services uh, should be able to afford to different people. So, Andrea, what's next? So uh, this podcast often uh, emphasizes practical takeaways for people listening uh, in various parts of the uh, legal ecology or ecosystem, as we say, or the, the yep. legal profession more narrowly. Uh, and, and practical takeaways, not only for people in the U.S., uh, which is the, the primary audience for the American Bar Association and the Commission, but uh, we have people listening to the podcast all over the world. There are, as you know, uh, conversations about law and lawyering and legal education uh, all over the planet. And so uh, I wonder if you could reflect a bit on what you'd like to see happen next. And let me just qualify that by saying the report does not specify, and again, I think this is purposeful uh, reading it, the report does not specify who exactly should act on the recommendations and strategies that the report does describe. Uh, it, it's a call to action. Uh, that is directed to the entirety of the legal universe, uh, which is uh, open and flexible. But I, I, I hope that, that the commission has in mind some strategies and game plans. Uh, so if, if you're a leader in academia, you're a leader in law practice, you're a leader in legal tech, or you're not a, in a leadership role, you're a, a, a law professor or an entrepreneur or uh, you know, a junior partner uh, looking to build a career, uh, what what does the report mean in practical terms? How should people pick it up and act on it? Great. Um, I'll start with actually the the global um, the global audience um, because I think the this is clearly you know written for uh, the U.S. marketplace and the U.S. legal system. But um, I think there's a lot in here that are really essential truths. I used that term before. Um, so I think you kind of have to read it with a lens of how might this be useful to me? You know, the, the genesis of the model we used here comes from a, a few different places. One is the Ruggie principles. We looked at human rights globally and how to, you know, global businesses help that. Um, it's from a bit of my personal experience where at Accenture, we had our six core values that guided everything we did for you know decades. Um, and those both worked globally. And I think what we've created here um, in the 
in the smaller text will need to be refined <laughs> for our global friends, um, but I think it can still be useful. So I'd, I'd encourage that for the um, for the various constituents who will be listening. Um, you know, there'll be the folks who are listening who are already change agents who are fighting hard every day. Um, my hope is that what we have in here um, is backup for you, uh, meaning uh, you're doing the hard work. Um, you may be lonely in your institution um, in that you're doing it by yourself and sometimes um, don't have the support and perhaps even um, the negative support from your colleagues. And what we're trying to do here is give you some impetus to say, look, these are not problems that just I see. Um, this commission of distinguished members uh, sees it as well. And here's some sort of um, backup for me. Um, I, my father has a great quote that I'm going to share, which is that in transforming education, which he's been doing in the K-12 area for decades, um, the status quo doesn't need an advocate. They can just ignore you. Um, so my hope is that for those who are already out there being change agents, they can use um, this report to support what they're doing. For folks who are new to this arena, um, I think what you do is look here for what problem are you trying to deal with or solve, and are there solutions in here? Um, I, I think the most, uh, I think the biggest value add out of this report, aside from the fact it's digestible at 10, you know, 10 pages or so, is that we look systemically. Um, we don't uh, point fingers in a way that says it's clearly this guy's fault or that guy's fault or this institution or that institution. And the shaming and the pointing fingers in all directions uh, hasn't really worked. Um, and the fact is we all have a part to play. So whether it be an entrepreneur who's coming up with new ways to do you know, legal tech at the entry level, and so it's going to transform what new associates do. We need those individuals to be understanding all of this, so they know that the you know how they can add value, and perhaps even you know where their market is. Uh, if you look at um, perhaps a law school, thinking about in the age of <laughs> we're all online now, and it's not changing anytime soon. Um, how do I get ahead of? today's fire and tomorrow's fire and think strategically about even just a few months away, let alone years. Um, and might I use the principles as a way to frame a process with faculty to think about how do we transform for the future? Um, and even crazier, how might we do that in a collaborative fashion with other institutions of higher learning? Um, and I think there's a lot in there. So yeah, we, uh, we did not do the, you know, assign to do list in the report here. Um, in part because um, it would be too long a list, <laughs> um, but in part is it varies by jurisdiction, right? It varies by type of institution. Um, and what we're looking for are uh, a few more folks who are willing to be those advocates for change. And what we hope is in here is uh, the framework and the roadmap for principled dialogue about where do we go for the future. Um, and uh, other practical steps would be call Trish or me or any of the commission members um, if it doesn't make sense and you need help. Oh, that's great. Trish, I'll give you the last word. You, you had, you had uh, two long runs as dean of two law schools. So you have a, a very specific uh, perspective on change management in these very status quo institutions. What, what do you want... Uh, if you were to speak to the, sort of the leadership cohort of the, the law world, the legal ecosystem, what, what would you want the, that cohort to take away from this report? Well, I'll say two things by respo in response to that, Mike. Number one is 
Um, I think the key to being uh, a good problem solver in a big structure is not to lose sight of what your ultimate goal is. And I think that we in the law school world, in the legal practice world, and in the licensure world, and this whole ecosystem have done that. We've lost sight. And that's part of the reason with going back to these non-controversial um, but important foundational principles. We are supposed to be, uh, as the stewardship thing says, the guardians of the legal system within our democracy. And uh, we're supposed to work to defend liberty, pursue justice, and maintain the rule of law for future generations. Uh, the democratic values of, of our society or the values of a democratic society are hugely important. And so if you can keep that as your fundamental goal and then you start thinking about changes with that being the big picture, it's actually a different approach from solving your particular little problem that you might have of the day. And so for leaders, what we would like is people to be able to recognize what the what the real goal is and to be able to to think in those terms um, with respect to the moment uh, through <laughs> uh, having nothing to do with us we're suddenly in a moment when uh, all of these institutions are being thrust uh, unwittingly into circumstances where they're going to need to consider fundamental change uh, because of the because of the virus because of the uh, or the, the pandemic and because of the sudden uh, and abrupt changes they've had to make operationally and the economic uh, disruption etc cetera, etc cetera. and so perhaps fortuitously uh, what we hope we've done is provide a conceptual structure, in which the kinds of changes and adjustments that are going to need to be made could be considered once you've gotten through this week, as it were, and moving moving forward. And so I think that going forward, when you ask about what's next, I think that perhaps what we have done is to provide a framework in which big conversations can be had among institutions about how more cost effectively to bring about these goals and ultimate values that we think a legal system uh, is responsible uh, for, for maintaining and advocating for. Excellent. So we've come to the end of our time. Uh, so I want to offer my thanks to both of you, Trish and Andrea, uh, for joining me today. I want to extend the thanks as well to all of the members of the commission. Uh, I know that Dan and Dan and Hunter and I are both looking forward, we hope, to having uh, more members of the commission as guests of the podcast in the future. So uh, that's it for today. Uh, for everyone out there, you can find the Future Log Podcast and you can contact us, Dan Hunter and myself, at our website, thefuturelawpodcast.com. And you can find this episode and additional podcast episodes both there and at Google, Apple, and other fine podcast providers. Thanks very much for listening. Look forward to being with you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Future Law Podcast. For links to the articles mentioned and to contact the hosts, visit futurelawpodcast.com.